to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Get 15% off any DIR 101 course and introduction to DIR and DIR floor time through ICDL.com by using the promo code AFFECTA15, that's A-F-F-E-C-T-A-1-5. Welcome back listeners, I'm Daria Brown and I have with me today two returning guests, Maud LaRue in Pennsylvania, who is an occupational therapist. She runs the A Total Approach Clinic that my family has brought my son to for many years, except we couldn't go last year and we miss you guys, Maud. <laughs> and both of our guests today are DIR expert training leaders in the developmental individual differences relationship-based model, DIR floor time, and Mike Fields, a licensed professional counselor in Atlanta. And our topic today is ADHD and some subtitles as well, which we'll get into in a second, but welcome back, both of you. Thanks. It's good to be here. I sent you both the link to a podcast from Dr. Joshua Fader, who's a psychiatrist. He's been on the podcast many times. He did a podcast with his colleague for the Carlot Report, which is a psychiatric report that he is the editor of. And they talked about ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And it was referring to an interview they did with Dr. Edward Hollowell, who goes by Dr. Ned. And he suggested, Dr. Ned suggested, that it should be renamed to VAST, the Variable Attention Stimulus Trait. He has this podcast that is called Distraction. It's really interesting. And so I absolutely loved Dr. Fader's take on it with his colleague. And basically the gist of it was to channel what's being referred to as a disorder as a strength and taking away that the child or adult is broken and thinking about what's worked for you in the past and how do you build upon the times when who you are as someone with ADHD works for you. And it's so in line with DIR floor time that I assume that's why Dr. Fader did this, did the podcast. And so Maud LaRue trains a lot about ADHD. She sees ADHD kids in her clinic all the time. Mike Fields has it's out in the open that he has been diagnosed in his adulthood with ADHD. Mike and I are both the parents of autistic children. Uh, after reading a lot about ADHD, I am starting to wonder if both my husband and I have ADHD. I'll be interested in, in hearing what you guys have to say about it. Because this is usually an autism podcast, there's a lot of overlap with ADHD. I thought we would, Maud, get you first to just tell the listeners, what, what is ADHD in the first place? I know you don't diagnose kids, but what is the diagnosis and what do you see when kids come to your clinic? Well, it is a vast topic. <laughs> in, in many respects, if we can take his word for what he thinks ADHD should be. I actually love Dr. Hollowell's work and read his book, Driven by Distraction, and I believe he's got another book coming out which I didn't know about until you gave me that thing to listen to. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, he is, is really making a difference in the thinking around ADHD. So I'm an occupational therapist. For me, it's all about development. In DIR work, it's all about development. So the overlap is very clear between any diagnosis with developmental 
features and ADHD as a developmental feature. So in the literature currently, like Barclay and all those others, they don't really talk about ADHD as a developmental piece. They talk about it as a medical diagnosis with a, a variety of different pieces attached to it. They don't talk about ADD anymore. They now talk about SCT, which is sluggish cognitive tempo, um, which I know that nobody's really happy with that name. So they're also thinking of changing that name again. Um, but ADHD has the hallmark of hyperactivity. And basically, if, in order for the medical profession to make the diagnosis, you have to have at least had the symptoms for six months or longer in order to really have this. And you must exclude any other type of a diagnostic category, such as ASD. But we all know that ASD have um, kids, can I say autistic kids, autistic adults, carry oftentimes a difficulty in attention deficit. Um, so where the link comes for me is in the developmental hierarchy, is that in order to have attention, you have to have a certain amount of building blocks in place. And I will just shortly say, and I want to give Mike a turn to talk about his um, experience, is that Michael Posner's research in the book, older book now, but I still love the book, Images of the Mind, a little bit of a technical piece. You know, you don't, you read a chapter and then you read a romance novel, you know, you don't read it all at once. Um, so really talks about, it's almost like seven steps of an attention hierarchy in the brain. So for me, because I like to simplify things, I've changed it to about four different pieces that I look at when I assess in the developmental continuum. The first one is, you first have to register the stimulus with the different systems. Mostly your auditory or visual system, but your, all your systems are involved. Then you have to orient your body towards that stimulus. So something bangs next to you and then you kind of, okay, what's that? And then as you say, what's that? You process the information to the cortex, which is your processing speed. And then you give meaning to it in the cortex which is your attention piece, right? Attention being known as a cognitive type of a skill is how it's coined in the literature. So in order to get attention by the research itself, you gotta go through these developmental levels. And what kid with ASD do you know that doesn't have sensory issues, that doesn't have registration issues? So there's a huge commonality with registration, postural orientation, processing speed, and then eventually being able to do attention with meaning. So maybe Mike, over to you. Uh, yeah. All of that definitely applies oh. to me. I fit, I'm still ADHD. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so as, as you mentioned, I was diagnosed later in life. Um, I was uh, a really outgoing, energetic kid. Uh, looking back at my old report cards, and my mom kept everything, uh, including a penny I swallowed when I was just a couple of years old. Still <laughs> in a scrapbook at home. Uh, anyway, all my report cards. Um, Mike is uh, really good in class if he would just, you know, be quiet and pay attention more. Uh, but I got good grades. And I think part of that was because I was, uh, you know, a happy-go-lucky kid that 
I think my personality kept me out of trouble. Um, you know, if it, I think about kids we see now going to school and the kids who are quiet or who are happy, uh, they don't get in trouble as much and they may be overlooked if they have uh, disabilities because they're not causing trouble. Uh, but it's the kids who, you know, shift to kind of that fight pattern or that defensiveness that really draw attention. Um, so I think I escaped through that way. Uh, and then just, I was always active, um, was in marching band and played music and had all these activities. So just places to channel my energy. Um, and then after school, after graduation, having a family, uh, had a son on the spectrum, floor time was life-changing. Um, I've mentioned that before in the other podcasts, but, uh, I went back to school to be a counselor and I was sitting with Kathy Plasman, Dr. Plasman, uh, amazing uh, psychologist here in Atlanta and she's the clinical director at ICDL, right? So um, one day we, we were doing supervision and uh, she said, Mike, let me ask you a couple of questions. And she pulled out her uh, little uh, pocket DSM and she goes, you my friend are a, what was it a 314 combined type? <laughs> so, yeah, ADHD combined type. And um, I, after that, I went to a psychiatrist to get it officially diagnosed. And uh, yeah, he said, yeah, you're way off the chain, super ADHD. Um, so yeah, one of the things that I, I hope we get into, I think we're going to get into, um, is that how people define that and how people see me through that kind of historical uh, medical deficits-based model lens versus a uh, more strengths-based uh, floor time uh, developmental perspective, um, I think is huge and has made a ton of difference. Um, for me, how I see what is in fact a disability for me at times and at other times a superpower. You know what, Mike, um, I'm sorry if I'm jumping in here, um, Daria, but it speaks so much to me what you're saying. You know, um, I can just share with you that every single report card I had at school at the end was Maud makes careless mistakes. Maud makes careless mistakes. It was just like pervasive because I really hardly ever studied. I really wasn't a good student. And I probably am what you call a late bloomer. <laughs> so because I really love to study now and I wish I did more of that when I was younger. But um uh, but it was just so, you know, that's just one of the hallmarks of a specific subtype of ADHD is that whole piece. And Daria, were you saying uh, that you and your husband may have some of that, you know, I think we all carry. And the reason we all carry, I think, sometimes glimmers of, you know, how you, you when you weren't, sorry, I'm going on a tangent here, but when you were in college and you did Psychology 101, oh, I may have schizophrenia. Oh, I may have bipolar <laughs> disorder. No, I think I have borderline personality disorder. You know, so, so thankfully we don't carry all the diagnoses, but there is certain commonalities. And you know what? Because it's human behavior. Because none of these categories are actually without the distinction of us all being on some continuum of behavior. And that's what makes it for me where I'm not a fan of the DSM. Can I just say that straight out? I'm just not a fan 
not because I don't think that they're doing, they're trying to do something good. I think that there needs to be something to go by for sure. But can we just switch that instead of DSM, switch it to a profile and, and recognize that all behavior falls on a continuum of a profile capacity and that that profile, wherever we fall, some of us a little bit more careless than others, some of us a little bit more distracted than others, but that that actually becomes the distinctive piece on which we program. So you were quite right, Daria. I don't diagnose and I'm so happy about that because I don't want to. I really love working on the profiles of children and seeing their behavior as just part of their continuum in their own life and sphere, their adaptive response to what they, what's out there. If we take attention, since we're talking about attention, and, and Mike, I feel for what you're saying that we need to really look at what does it do to people to have these labels, you know? Um, but if we just take attention and we take all of that, the other pieces away, just the developmental piece, when we pay attention, we are requiring every single nervous system piece, cranial nerves, to be working together in a certain amount of timing. If I'm going to be looking at the teacher for what she's showing me, I'm also going to be listening to what she's telling me. If my listening function and my seeing function is not correlating together in synchrony at the same timing, and I may have a processing speed whammy, and that's an official term that we're allowed to use, whammy. If we have a whammy in either one of those systems, it means that the message that she's showing to us together at the same time, showing and telling, is not reaching my cortex at the same time. So for me, it feels like a badly dubbed movie because the lips are still going, but the auditory is coming in later. So what does the child do? You know what? It's so much easier if I look out of the window and I keep listening. Oh, no, 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 no. You got to look at me for me to know you're engaged with me. Because you know, it's all about eye contact. So look at me, look at me. And now we dutifully turn to teacher and we look at you and we think, if I look at you, I can't hear you. Because I can't do both together. Now, is that an attention deficit? Or is that a sensory integration timing dysfunction? Right? So when we look at that, if we say, oh, that child is distractible, we are labeling it almost like a bad behavior. If we say we have a sensory integration dysfunction in the timing between those systems, it's far more part of a profile, part of that's my profile, that's where it is. Does it have to be coined as a deficit? Does it have to be coined as a weakness? I'm certain in some instances it is a weakness. And I think that most people who have that disparity would like not to have that from time to time. But as you say, so many of my clients, quote unquote ADHD, is wonderfully gifted and creative and has got pockets full of ideas. And I love to listen to them, Mike. I love to listen to how many, I mean, you have a sense of humor about you. That's how I kind of got to know you. And I love that. There's just this funny piece about them that makes me want to celebrate them. 
instead of saying, well, you have a deficit and that deficit is called blah, blah, blah. You know, and I think enough said, I think you got my message there. Yeah, and it really makes me wonder how your childhood would have been, Mike, had you been diagnosed when you were younger, because then it might have been this cloud over your head and you might have been treated differently. I wanted to do the podcast for two reasons. One, because, of course, we're talking a lot to parents and practitioners, and you might see a lot of overlap with autism and ADHD, but also there is a genetic component to autism. Parents either have some kind of autism themselves, whether they've been diagnosed or not, or they determine as adults that they're autistic, or lots of times they have ADHD and it may or may not be diagnosed. And then you see autism in their offspring. So I thought it would be something that's interesting to parents listening who might have ADHD or think they do or whatever, that we talk about the different ways it expresses itself in adulthood as well. Yeah, certainly that's a big point. And I think the takeaway from what Maud said is back to the I in the DIR model, individual differences. It's about a profile. It's what everybody presents. I, unlike you guys, was like teacher's pet, star student, all the way through grade school and high school, every teacher loved me. My kindergarten teacher, my third grade teacher said I was gonna be the first female prime minister. So like the future was bright. And then in university, I just found it so difficult because it wasn't that classroom environment with relationships. I went away, I was only two hours away, big classes, less attention, having to do everything yourself. In grade school and high school, I barely had to study, it just came so easily to me. My point is in grad school psychology class, I was sent a letter privately, and this is a small class of like five people, because I apparently was fighting falling asleep in class every day. And I, I noticed that too, even in these Zoom meetings and at conferences sometimes, like I need to turn my camera off because I'm still listening, but I'm literally falling asleep. Like I'm a sensory seeker like my son and I need stuff to keep me awake. So it's interesting when you think about looking at our kids, the first thing they say is parents too, fill out your sensory processing profile. And although there are lots of differences between me and my son, like my son's profile is a lot like me, even though I never had challenges or struggles or anything like that on a surface level growing up. But hearing some of the adult um, ADHD thing I came across, uh, Mike, you mentioned you watch Jessica McCabe's How to ADHD YouTube channel. I just watched a couple little clips and listening to her story, I was like, oh yeah, like I'm always doing 50,000 things at once. I have so much energy. Like my husband, who's quite a bit younger than me, is like exhausted all the time. And he's like, you two of you are tiring me out. He has more gray hair than me, you know, and he, and, and I'm just get up and I'm ready to go. I don't need coffee. I'm like, full of energy all the time. So that's why I said, who knows if I have ADHD. He has the other stuff like distracted, forgets what time it is, gets lost in what he's doing, those kinds of things. So who knows if we do or not, neither one of us has been diagnosed. But anyway, yeah, this whole concept of the profile, individual differences. Did you wanna to respond to anything that Maude or I have said, Mike, and how it resonates with you and the kids that you see? Yeah. 
Yeah, first to, to start, you said, you know, who knows if you or your husband have ADHD. And from a floor time perspective, and to go back to what Maud was saying about profiles is, and who really cares? I mean, it, it's <laughs> the, the labels are, they're, they're good for a couple of things. The labels help you qualify for services and to get reimbursement money. It's, it's just about that. And that's why things are so tied still to this uh, medical model of deficits where, you know, we have to be able to measure and count and, you know, show progress. And of course, you know, there's the uh, old saying, not everything that counts can be counted and not everything that can be counted counts. Uh, and that's why Dr. Greenspan came up with the diagnostic manual for infancy and early childhood, you know, autism doesn't really tell you a lot. You know, you can make a, a stereotype and, you know, some assumptions in there, but like we're talking, it's a really broad spectrum of experiences and, and differences. Uh, so focusing on that profile, which is really what the DIMIC does, uh, the Diagnostic Manual for MC and Early Childhood, um, breaks things down into what are the, uh, what are the different pieces of that profile? Um, so somebody who is very kinetic, you know, likes to move a lot, needs that movement. That's useful. Um, somebody who is, uh, who needs to be able to see things or who needs extra time to process things, that kind of stuff is useful. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't work out with insurance. So that's a different, uh, issue. And there's lots going on about that, uh, ICDL, has uh, been doing um, a lot of advocacy, especially in California and New Jersey, getting insurance approval. And there's even a class in development about uh, how to write insurance goals from a floor time perspective, all stuff. Uh, yeah. And Mike's talking about the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning. And yeah. in the blog post uh, with this podcast, I'll put a link to the, the course that he just mentioned that ICDL will be offering. Yeah, but the, the way I see things, the, the beautiful uh, framework that floor time has given me is uh, our brains are pattern recognizers. So I love symbolism and imagery. And this is where my ADHD, I think, is a superpower because I can connect things and I can hold little bits of info, symbolic, you know, so shortcuts so I don't get distracted with all the details, but still can connect a bunch of things together, like the way that I teach uh, floor time is the FEDCs, the functional emotional developmental capacities are a map. We can look at that and like we're looking at a roadmap and see where we are, what town we're in. Um, and then the individual differences are like the legend for the map that can tell us here's places that we need to make sure to check out on our journey, or here's places that could be a little tricky or dangerous. So be careful when you're traveling through these areas. Um, and then of course, uh, relationships are the vehicle that we're traveling in and affect is the fuel for everything. Uh, so whether somebody has uh, a label of ASD, ADHD, whatever it is, the comorbidities, um, which make a lot of sense when you dig down and look at individual differences and in profiles. We can see how a lot of that stuff is related. Um, but those things are really where the good stuff 
is. And I want, for, for when I had a child, I wanted him to be happy and successful. Then he had a diagnosis. I found about my diagnosis and do my goals change? Well, you know, for a while I was thinking, well, I want him to talk or I want him to do this, or I wish I could just get started on stuff that's hard and boring. But then I switched back to that strengths based and I still want just to be happy and successful. So I focus on what am I good at? I read an article in a business magazine one time where an entrepreneur uh, talked about, um, I'm really not good at such and such. And he said, so if I spent all my time on that, like this is average and here's me, if I spent all my time on that, maybe one day I could be here. Or if you focus on what you're really good at, then that's when you can really make something happen. And, and uh, Maud mentioned making meaning. Uh, that is so important. And I think, Maud, that goes to why you and I had trouble studying when we were younger, but we love to do it now. Because when we were younger, we were studying what we were told to study. That's right. And now we're studying what we're passionate about. That's right. And that's easy because ADHD is an interest-based uh, kind of way of thinking about things, not priority. This has to be done or there'll be consequences. Ooh, squirrel. That doesn't work. Um, so yeah, I, I just want to focus on strengths and helping people be happy and successful. And what does that mean to them? I want them to be able to choose that, not me tell them this is how you be happy and successful. You have to be in marching band. You have to play piano. You have to play little league baseball and football and do all the things that I did. Go water skiing in the summer. Lots of people don't do that and they're still happy and successful. So cool. What do you like? And that's, that's fine. more fun. Right. I, th I think there's, there's so much to be said for what you're saying. Um, <clears throat> I'm also thinking if we think back on young children and you get them they have the diagnosis, they have the label. And, the, and, you know, there's something to be said for the whole fact, you know, that many parents tell their kids they have ASD. Some parents don't tell their kids if they have ASD. They, whatever, for whatever frame of reason, there isn't a right or a wrong. It's whatever works for you, right? Um, then I think about the kids who have ADHD, and I think about all of the stimulant medicine and all the different types of medicines that's out there to treat ADHD, which is still the treatment of the day, this medicine. Um, and then I think about how they have to go down to the nurse's office at lunch every day to go and get their medicine, or however much they have to routine it throughout the day to make sure they get the extended release or their whatever release they, they're using. And I think about what does it do to that child's psyche? that this is where he is different from his peers. I have to go down to the nurse's office to go get my medicine because without that, I don't fully function. What is that doing to their sense of self? You know, I'm not saying that all medicine is bad. I'm, I'm not against medicine. I think I take a headache tablet when I have a headache. I think medicine has good reasons. But when I think about the labeling causing us to go into a certain trajectory of treatment when sometimes the label doesn't even fit. And then we are in that trajectory and now we go into that classified structure and now I'm in this channel. 
what does that do to somebody like you, Mike, right? That's creative, that flourishes on ideation. Um, and now you have to think in a certain way because most ADHD is, is more on the right brain end of creative, but most schooling is left brain, language, logic, write that essay, put it in a structure, pragmatics, sentences, rules, language rules. And this is how you write a good essay. And no, 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 not like this, like this, right? So a lot of your educational curriculum depends on the left logical brain. Whereas ADHD, their superpower is very often right brain and having all that creative ideas. I would love to, I just listen to their stories. You know, I say to the parents, you know what? While we're still working on this whole written expression piece, you just write for him. Just tell him to tell you all his ideas. Just write them down. Think scrum. And I, I, I tell them that's how you deal with homework is make him think all his thoughts, write them down and tell him what a cool thought he has, right? That's his strength. And then, okay, let's put some of those cool thoughts together and let's create an essay together, right? We're going to get there because in my therapy program, we do get to the written expression and those pieces. And of course, we're not even talking about all the reading relationship to the ADHD kind of a profile and other academic pieces. So I think that coming back to that sense of self-peace is that I'm wondering, I'm not saying that I know, I'm just wondering what does it do to a child's psyche when the category is your label and your label is coined to be you and that you're not beyond that label. I think it's an open question, an open debate that we still need to have. Yeah, and story is so important. That's how I got into the niche I'm in where I'm using uh, therapeutic role-playing games um, for growth and healing. Uh, we get to assume the identity of different characters and act out and, and try different experiences, um, do things that we wouldn't get to do in regular life and uh, you know, see how that turns out in the safety of the confines of a story or a game. Um, but yeah, absolutely, Maud. I think story and our identity um, plays a huge part in, you know, how we see and how we feel about ourselves. And I think that everyone should be able to write their own story and define themselves how they see themselves. That's right. That's right. And, and this whole piece, you know, when we come back to the educational system, which I don't blame, there's no blame game with me. I feel for teachers. I think they're often not as equipped as they need to be to deal with all of the diversity that they have to deal with in their classrooms. Um, so it excuses them. It also doesn't because I think we all have an obligation that if we're going to be doing this job, we better find out what our jobs should be about, right? So part of, part of what we need to do is to be self-responsible, to learn more, to know more, and to apply more, right? But the other pieces too is that there's just so much time in the day that I have to take care of everything. And sometimes a teacher goes into a class of 24 kids and she has eight IEPs, eight. Just, a, just, the, just the meetings alone, 
not even the writing up of all those IEPs. And some IEPs, I've seen some IEPs that's got what, 35 to 45 to 50 goals. Nobody even looks at that, really, if you're honest about it, throughout the school year. I mean, you have to check in with it, of course. And of course, you always have an idea what it is that you're going to have to work on. But really, when you work on it at the developmental frame, I often tell um, my staff, I always say to them, I'm, I'm going to pay you to become lazy. And they always look at me like lazy. We're taught as OTs, you have to have 10 activities in an hour. And this is how you're a good OT. You measure it on how many things that you can actually plan and how many things you can accomplish in that hour. That's a good OT. And I'm like, yeah, that's when OT is about you. That's when it's not about the child. Because if the child's agenda is followed, the child wants to follow his strengths. The child wants to do what Mike is saying. Let's go to role play. Let's do the pretend. You know, let me become Thomas the Tank Engine. Let me become the Wizard of Oz. Let me, let me feel what that feels like. But if you keep putting me in a place where this is what I have to do and this is what I should be doing and this is the only thing that's going to make me publicly appropriate and this is the only thing that's going to make me look like I'm not standing out as being different, then that becomes the part that also tells this child I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough for what you think I should be doing. I think labeling, ADHD, even ASD, any kind of labeling is putting that cover on the book, but not opening the pages to read what's within and to really see the story. And it's the story that makes this children unique. It's not the overlap. But I do admit that somehow we have to get as a science, we have to come together across a certain continuum and cluster of different pieces to be able to have science. I do think that it's necessary. But when you take that science and you put it onto a person and it devalues that person for being a person, that's when I'm not so happy. That's when I say, you know what? I'm not so sure that we dare to do that to any one other person out there. Yeah. And I know the podcast that I did with Dr. Glavinsky about emotions, Lisa Feldman Barrett's work where how emotions are made about what Mike said, our brains are prediction finders, and we actually construct emotions because our brain's constantly looking for examples and experiences that we had before, and then constructing what emotion we feel. And when you're talking about labels, she was saying we're looking at a population. So when people say families have 1.3 kids or whatever, 2.1 kids, there's no such thing as a 1.3 kid or a 2.1 kid. It's just the statistical artifact. So similarly, you know, they say emotions like fear looks like this. Well, it actually doesn't. They've done all kinds of studies everywhere and took out the confounders of all the old studies that showed that and show that actually there's quite a variation in expressions of fear. But if you statistically average everything out, then you might get this as like an average fear, but it could also mean a number of other things. So you can't label that. I loved the way you described that mod is we're writing the cover without opening the book and reading the pages. 
And um, in that podcast with Josh and Mara, they, they were talking about how Dr. Ned described helping a woman overseas because he was at a conference or something and then he had to fly back to Boston and she was, I, I think it was in China, and um, helped her child and the th things that they did and the massive improvements they saw in his performance just from shifting a few things. Well, number one was stop hitting. Okay, well, we don't really have corporal punishment here. And if we do, it's it's hush hush and we shouldn't do that. And everybody knows that. Um, that was pretty obvious. But the second thing was massive amounts of love from the caregivers and presuming competence. And we talk about that in floor time all the time. Presume competence. We're looking at strengths, um, just Fine. positive, not saying like, oh, you can't do this. You can't do this. We're focusing on what they can do. And the third thing where I think um, Maud can give us some good insight into and Mike can give us some practical life experience mm -hmm. into is they did cerebellar exercises for balance and coordination. And although they didn't have research backing up that that specifically helps with ADHD, there's tons of research that physical activity helps with ADHD. Virginia Spielman in an older podcast I did with her about sensory lifestyle mentioned Elizabeth Torres' work. Her book is Autism, the Movement Sensing Perspective and about movement. So I imagine, Mike, for you, from what you said, you did lots of different activities. For me, whether or not I have some kind of vast <laughs> variable uh, attention sense sensing trait or not, you know, I, I'm always moving around. I'm always doing something, keeping busy, but movement of our body is so important. So Maud, do you find that that really helps regulate children? You know, he, there may not be specific research for Hallowell to prove why cerebral activity works for his ADHD program, but there's a lot of research that talks about cerebellar vestibular activity being the peptides of the system and being the peptides of joy. I mean, just take Candace Pert's research on the molecules of emotion way back, what's it, 2003, 2004, um, talking about the whole piece of activity and vestibular activation. Certainly as an occupational therapist, that is my job. I center all the sensory systems around the axis of the vestibular system and how the vestibular system is my central integrator to auditory, to visual, to probe, to all those other pieces. And movement does it. Think about when somebody is depressed. How do they move? How do they speak? Um, well, uh, you know, um, uh, right? So you, you get that sense of the voice is flat. The body is stooped. The eyes are cast down, right? You get the whole posture. I mean, trauma people talk about this all the time. Peter Levine, somatic experiencing. Pat Ogden doing her psychodrama work. Janina Fisher that does also, I think, partly of Pat Ogden's work. All of that trauma people are talking how the body holds the score. Bessel van der Kolk, right? All of those pieces relates to what we are actually talking about now. And that piece that Hallowell cottoned on, the vestibular piece, is actually a common link up to all those pieces. The way we move, tell people about us. Tell people where we are. If we're busy and we're trotting along, getting stuff done, right? What do they say? Give something to a busy person, you get it done, right? Because the energy is there. 
and you're going to do it and, and off you go. The vestibular system drives attention. It drives integration. It drives praxis, motor planning. It drives how I'm going to be timing my systems together in order to look at you and listen to you at the same time. The, the overlap in the temporal lobe and the parietal lobe, temporal being much more the, the timing language piece, parietal being much more the sensory motor piece, they come together. And they come together also in the area in the brain that's very involved in interoception. And the link of that with interoception that I can feel what I'm feeling inside of my body and that supports me to how I'm going to be understanding how you feel my whole piece of empathy. It's, you cannot separate the vestibular system from these pieces. So I totally get what Halliwell is saying. It's why I love his first book and I will love his second book, I know, because he was speaking my language. He's speaking in OT's language. It's what we see every day. Do we need more proof? Yes. In specific directions, if we want to talk labels, <laughs> we need to prove that vestibular is going to help ADHD. But do we know that vestibular helps and supports the brain development? That is an absolute researched fact. So I think it's onto something quite big. Dr. Fader in the podcast did mention about movement helping in, in so many ways, but he said the the biggest thing that I took away from that piece that he said was he doesn't ever want to medicate as a first response. He wants to try these other things first. Of That's course, right. medication is absolutely necessary in some cases, but he wants to see, and actually we did a podcast on autism and medication, and, and he said the same thing. He said, if you're not seeing progress in the developmental capacities, I might look at medicating. But if you are seeing progress, because our son is super hyperactive. Like my little guy, like Maud knows him well. He's very active. It's very hard for him to sit still unless he's watching an iPad or playing a video game. But even playing a video game, he's going, woo, yeah, woo, like for hours on end. Like where does this energy come from, right? But even in that case, you know, we, we had doctors suggest to us numerous times maybe some medication will help him be able to focus and calm down. And that might be so. And a lot of because of what Dr. Fader said, but also because I, I don't want to go on the medication route if we don't have to. Um, he's been progressing in his capacities. So we're not looking at medication. Will we in the future? If if need be, who knows? But I thought that was good that Dr. Fader said that, but it, it brings me to a question. And I, I know I want to give you a chance to respond about the experience too, Mike, but it brings me to a question of maybe there are things that can help people and this is probably a separate podcast on motivation, but if you know movement helps you, yet you just don't do it. You know, there are people that could benefit from moving around in that, but they don't do it and and it they could be helping themselves, um, but they'll, oh, I'll just take my medication. Like, and you don't wanna say it's laziness because it might also be something about um, organizing themselves to get up and move is too overwhelming. I don't know, but just something else I'm throwing out there. Mike, did you have some responses to any of all that that's, stuff that we said? <laughs> that's the medicine I want. I want the medicine that makes me want to do stuff that I don't want to do. 
Um, the stuff that I'm passionate about, interested in, it's easy to focus attention on that. It's easy to regulate and modulate. And that's really what we're talking about. It's not a deficit. It's a regulation issue. And how do we bring all that together? Uh, and, you know, Mon's talking about the underpinnings and biology behind all that works and coming from a OT background and, uh, you know, how the sensory system is so important to everything. I'm a counselor, mental health person, and that's still important to me because how do we learn to solve cognitive problems or how do we learn to solve emotional problems? Those are really abstract and can be hard and frustrating because we can't directly see what it is that we're trying to do. We have to first learn how to be able to do that. We have to first learn uh, through a more concrete physical way how to solve problems. Um, and then that helps build our praxis, our ability to have ideas and sequencing and organize and to be able to carry out. And then when stuff goes wrong, to be able to adapt right. that. Uh, and the affect really is what holds all that together. So um, Jessica McCabe talks a lot about this uh, on her website that how to do or how to ADHD um, about how can we kind of trick our minds or reframe things to use what we're good at to scaffold weaknesses. Um, and one that I, an episode that I recently watched uh, that really resonated and I had been doing this without even realizing it is um, she talks about accountability buddies and body doubling. So if there's something that I don't want to do because it's hard or tedious and it's not interesting to my brain. And so I can't regulate the attention to stay here and let's persist. Um, being around somebody who is working makes it easier for me to work. So if I wake up in the morning, and this is where COVID has really messed me up. Um, I need my structure. My brain is not good at organizing things. So I rely on external organization to help support my internal organization. And now with COVID, I'm not out as much. My schedule is really variable. So I don't have the things that help drive me. Like I need to get up and get to an appointment and then, oh, hey, I'm out and I can do stuff now because I'm moving and, and I'm thinking. Instead, I wake up and I sit on the couch, probably doze off back to sleep, don't get anything done. You know, like Maude was saying, you know, give stuff to people who are busy to get it done. I can't get busy. So being around somebody who's busy can help me be busy. Um, that's the uh, body doubling. Person doesn't even have to know. And uh, as Jessica points out in her, uh, in her video, um, that's why like Starbucks and libraries, why do so many people go to work there? Body doubles. <laughs> There's other people in there and they don't even have to know that they're helping you, but just their being there can, can shift things. Uh, and then the other uh, accountability buddy, um, I, through COVID, I got really off track. I'm a pathological extrovert. I need people to energize. Um, Maude even mentioned, you know, look at me, pay attention. Well, you know, pick which one do you want? Uh, masks, 
masks have really impacted my hearing. And I've realized that what I focus on when people are talking is I focus on their eyes when I'm talking, but their mouth when they're talking, because my brain is doing other things while I'm listening. So I need the support of being able to see their mouth too. So with COVID, my hearing is horrible. Um, and Mike, just so you know, there is research that correlates that. auditory processing with attention problems and working memory with attention problems. That's a very big sort of overarching bridge, right? And it's very yeah. true. It's very true that we need that visual in order to listen. You know, if I lose my glasses, I can't hear, you know, that kind of the, the joke that people always make, you know, um, very important. And I think coming back to that productivity piece, it is actually what you're saying, Mike, for me, at least, it's the, it's the whole bridge of praxis. Is yeah, that the vestibular um, sensory registration of information impacts my ability to feel productive in my body so that I can become productive in my executive functions. And you said another very true thing is that when we don't have internal locus of control, we seek external locus of control. And what we haven't even touched on today, and I know we both have to go, is comorbidities and anxiety in those two things. All the things, and also just picky eating. Mm -hmm. How many people with attention problems are also picky eaters? What is that picky eating doing for them? Right? What is it doing? It's an external control for what's not internally in control. Um, and this is actually what we should be looking at, really should be looking at as a scientific community, is what is it that's going to be, um, I have to coin this right, what is it going to take for us as a society to realize that our internal control drives our external behavior? You know, that is the essence of everything we're talking about. Everything. What is an autistic child? Do they really feel in control inside when the world is coming to them at different fragmented pieces? A borderline personality disorder. Do you think that they're feeling in control outside and that's why they try to manipulate everybody around them? Right? If we're looking at any diagnostic category, anxiety, depression, um, you know, we need to look at that continuum back full circle to our beginning discussion, Daria. We need to come back and realize that it's not the diagnostic label that we put on the external behavior that matters. It is that we look within to see how the psyche is being formed in a self-identity, in a sense of self, in an individuation of the self. So that we look at the, continu the continuum of how that self develops over the course of in utero forward and looking more back again at maybe even including where Greenspan started. He started with psychoanalytic theory. And, and, and th so I have a great respect for that. And I've been reading Jung, I've been reading all kinds of people trying to get more of a handle on this piece. And I would feel much happier and much more respectful if I was looking at this little body in front of me and saying, you are a little developing body and you have to develop your own personality and you have to develop your own personality from the temperament that you were given perhaps through genetics 
but then your environment is going to form and shape those genetics into that little person that you're going to be, right? That's the way I want to look at children. Not, oh, here comes a diagnosis referral as an ASD, as an ADHD, as a reading disorder, as a whatever. We could extend this to many things, um, racism, sexism, gender discrimination, et cetera, et cetera, getting those labels and how that affects. And, and Maud, my, my master's is in psychology, so I studied all the psychology stuff first and yeah. then learned about all this other sensory stuff and all of this that can impact that. So it's really interesting. It's like we're, we're coming at it from different directions and meeting in this overlapped Venn diagram. So that's kind of cool. <laughs> the IR is interdisciplinary because there is so much overlap. We talk about separating out uh, you know, the vestibular system or, uh, you know, the capacity for engagement or reciprocity. And you, you can't really separate that stuff. It's all tightly interwoven. And so, yeah, Maud and the body and the senses and the psyche and our emotions and all that are all together. So being able to share this information, collaborate and, uh, you know, get a big picture of stuff while still um, being aware of the individual pieces uh, is messy. It's so much easier to be a behaviorist. Um, and in that way, if something's not working, it's just the client isn't trying. Um, oh, don't uh, even get me started on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much both. Um, hopefully listeners, if you have other ideas like, oh, that made me think I would love to hear you guys talk about this or whatever. Put it in the comments um, at affectautism.com under the blog post for ADHD uh, with Maud and Mike. And thank you both for sharing your expertise and experiences. Check out the YouTube channel, the blog post for Affect Autism, and see you all again next week. Thanks, and I hope I'll have you two back again soon as well. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Really appreciate it, Daria. It's been a fun afternoon. Thank yeah. you, Mike. <laughs> Thank you, too. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through playful interactions. If you're a caregiver looking to implement your own floor time approach, please see the parents menu at ICDL.com, the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning, for the virtual floor time consultations for parents. There you can schedule an appointment, look at the virtual DIR home program services, and see the weekly parent support meetings registration. We aim to help you implement the developmental individual differences relationship-based model at home, taking into account where your child is developmentally and their individual sensory processing differences within your safe and nurturing relationship to promote and support their developmental potential.